everyone guys um welcome back to ipv and me really excited to be here i apologize if my voice sounds a little croaky um i'm sick again shocking i've been i so i started last week i had a cold and then on tuesday night i woke up in the middle of the night and i had the worst pain in my abdomen and then just uh i just have like I, kind of an ongoing thing I've always had like digestive issues anyway my mom likes to tell me I got it from my dad um but yeah it's it's not been fun today I kind of feel okay today I'm a little bit nauseous um yesterday was the first day I started feeling like normal so uh yeah that's not been fun I've just been I feel like honestly ever since I got COVID the very first time I just get sick so easily now I think kind of a lot of people are in the same boat though but it sucks. But you know what? Here we are. It's Monday. It's President's Day. Um, yeah, I am working straight through for the next eight days. And then I go to Ireland, which I'm so excited about. I feel like I haven't been there forever, even though I was there in October. But I guess that's like, what, five months now? I just can't wait to see my nephews. I'm so excited. They're so damn cute. Um, and I just really want that nice fresh Irish air so bad I just want to walk on the beach I want to go to Benny's that's Primark for all you uh US listeners um yeah so I'm super excited about that uh it's nice like if you live in New York you know sometimes you just need a break so bad from the city like all I want to do is just you know see the sky you know um, but anyways, I've not been up to a whole lot, just been uh, working and then off sick and then working again and then off sick again. Um, I've been watching a lot of TV. I actually just started and started and finished The Traders UK, uh, which I was really excited about because there was such hype about it. And honestly, one of the best reality shows I've ever seen. Well, now, I'm a whore for reality TV, but honestly, it was one of the best I've ever seen. It was tense. It was emotional. It was twists and turns. It was just, like, honestly, the best group of contestants I've ever seen in on a reality show. It was so good. I'm watching the US one currently and just not loving it as much. Like, uh, you know, the Americans are so dramatic, but it's never, like... Like, the UK one was dramatic, but it was real drama. Americans are just so, like... Because most of them on it are already reality show contestants from other shows. And, like, you know it's, like, fake and just they're trying to cause drama, which I don't like as much. And also what I'm not liking is that all the tasks are exactly the same as the UK ones. So it kind of feels like I'm just watching the same show, but with different contestants and it's not as good. But I'm going to keep going anyway. And uh, I'm going to watch the Australian one, too. I haven't heard much about that, but gonna give it a go anyways um any any kind of reality to me um i'm all for it housewives anything vanderpump rules like big brother love island love it actually love island this year i've kind of given up on uh i watched the first two weeks and just like oh it was just so boring it's the first time i've ever actually given up on a series of love island which is really surprising um but i'm probably gonna like because i have like i said i'm, I'm gonna be on a five-hour flight uh, next week so I might just like download the episodes I haven't watched and just like you know something mind I like to watch something mind-numbing when I'm on the plane um so there you go um also speaking of uh, I have read a lot of books I went to a book signing at Barnes & Noble the other week um for Pamela Anderson's 
memoir guys I met Pamela Anderson now if you know anything about me Pamela Anderson is one of my idols since I was a kid like I remember the first time I watched Baywatch and I was an avid Baywatch fan um I loved it for the storylines you know but um I saw I remember seeing her like CJ Parker and I thought she was the coolest most gorgeous woman I'd ever seen in my life and then I just came hooked on Pamela Anderson I just love her I think she's so cool I think she's so gorgeous I think she's the most beautiful woman that ever walked the planet um and she's just really cool and her vibe is great and like um meeting her honestly was just like she took my breath away she still looks stunning she's so gorgeous she was so sweet she like looked right in my eyes when she was talking to me um she wrote a lovely message on my book and you know I just kind of like I just said to her you know I hope that you're feeling all of the love and support from everyone for the last week because her her book had just come out and then her documentary had been out the week before and she was like you know, she just really looked at me and was like, you know what, I really, really am, it's been a tough ride, and thank you so much for your support, like, she was so genuine, and I had a nice little chit-chat with her, and it was just really cool, it was so fun, and yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm still kind of, like, uh, on a buzz from that one, uh, so anyway, that's all for my catch-up right now, I won't ramble too much, because I got a lot to get through today, um, so today's episode, if you are a New Yorker, if you've lived in New York, if you know anything about New York politics, you will probably have heard of this story. If you followed the Me Too movement, you'll have heard of this story. Um, and I remember at the time when it was happening, when the story broke, and it's a, it's a really interesting one because uh, it gets kind of a, a little behind the scenes of you know, it really shows like the power that people in politics have and how things get covered up. And um, I took most of this story, pretty much all of this story, uh, apart from a few things along the way, I took from um, this lady's memoir and I have linked everything in the bio as per usual. So today I'm going to talk about the story of Tanya Silvaratnam. On May 7th, 2018, a story broke in The New Yorker. Eric Schneiderman, New York's Attorney General, has long been a liberal democratic champion of women's rights and recently he's become an outspoken figure in the Me Too movement against sexual harassment. As New York State's highest-ranking law enforcement officer, Schneiderman, who is 63, has used his authority to take legal action against the disgraced film mogul Harvey Weinstein and to demand, to demand greater compensation for the victims of Weinstein's alleged sexual crimes. Last month, when The Times and this magazine were awarded a joint Pulitzer Prize for coverage of sexual harassment, Schneiderman issued a congratulatory tweet praising the brave women and men who spoke up about the sexual harassment they had endured at the hands of powerful men. Without these women, he noted, there would not be the critical national reckoning underway. Now Schneiderman is facing a reckoning of his own. As his prominence as a voice against sexual misconduct has risen, so too has the distress of four women with whom he has had romantic relationships or encounters. 
They accused Schneiderman of having subjected them to non-consensual physical violence. All have been reluctant to speak out, fearing reprisal. But two of the women, Michelle manning Barish and Tanya Silvartnam, have talked to the New Yorker on the record because they feel that doing so could protect other women. So Tanya Silvartnam was born in 1972 in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and was raised in Long Beach, California. She received a BA in East Asian Languages and Civilizations and her MA in Regional Studies from Harvard. She's a writer-artist, Emmy-nominated and multi-Webby-winning producer with more than 25 years of experience in the arts and social justice. She grew up in an abusive household. One of her earliest memories is crying at the top of her lungs, watching her father towering over her mother with his hands raised. She was three years old. He kicks her mother. They are cursing at each other. The fights usually happen at night when she says their alter egos will come out. She was witness to many of these encounters. As she got older, she was able to restrain her father. She knew he loved her, but he seemed so broken. She was bullied in school due to her skin colour and dark lips. She was a shy child. She had a lot of secrets she was keeping about her home life. Eric Schneiderman was born in 1954 in New York City. He became a lawyer and politician who became the 65th Attorney General of New York in 2011. He had a painful childhood when his parents divorced and had such animosity toward each other that they even insisted on both calling him different names, one by his first name and the other by his middle name. Tanya and Eric met in July 2016 at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Producing election-related videos was Tanya's first step into politics. She wanted to get involved because she recognised the danger that the Republican candidate Donald Trump posed to the United States. Prior to 2016, she had been more likely to be in an art opening, book signing or theatre show. While she sat on a stool taking notes, she could sense someone watching her. She smiled at him. He walked over, saying he was surprised she was taking notes. He asked if she knew who he was. She did not. He was surprised at this. He introduced himself and said he was the Attorney General of New York. After he rejoined his group, she felt curious. He was older than the men she was usually interested in, but she found him handsome and smart. She wanted to see him again. The next night, back at the convention, she could see Eric on the Jumbotron, where he stood with the New York delegation. She realised what a big deal he was. During the proceedings, they emailed back and forth. He said he would call her the next day. When he did call, she was impressed that he had done what he said he would. They made plans to meet for lunch the next day. Tanya hadn't been in a relationship since her marriage ended two years before. Eric came downtown so it would be convenient for her and told his security detail not to accompany them. He seemed nervous. After they sat down, he said abruptly, I haven't vetted you yet. It seemed a strange thing to say off the bat, she thought. They stayed in contact through email, getting to know each other. He would send her articles about himself. She was bewildered that he seemed interested in her. She didn't feel like she looked like a politician type. She looked unconventional, rarely got her hair done and wore what she wanted, even at work. She wasn't the type to be seen in monochromatic A-line dresses and pumps. He sent her a brief about Exxon, the oil and gas corporation with which he was engaged in a legal battle. He was a hero of the climate change movement. Two days later, he sent her another article about himself and another battle, this one with Trump. Although she could have been put off by his boasting, she saw it as a sign that he was trying to impress her and she felt flattered. For the next few days, he rang her every single night and they spoke for an hour or more. Then he asked her out for dinner. At the restaurant, she was immediately escorted to a prime booth set apart from the tables in the middle of the space. 
During dinner, he joked about her being a spy from Exxon and said the company had done a very good job. Soon, though, his expression grew dark and he said, You know I could have your phone tapped. He also said he could have her followed. Was he trying to impress her or scare her, she wondered. But she let it go. Otherwise, he was sweet and attentive and curious about her life. The following week, he invited her to join him in a a magenset? My pronunciations are probably off with that one. Uh, Where a law school buddy had a home. At the house, they had separate but adjacent rooms. That night, after dinner, they had sex for the first time. Then he wanted to look at the moonlight, so they went to the balcony where he brought out a portable speaker and they danced. He held her gently and looked into her eyes. The next day, he took her to two fundraisers for Hillary Clinton in private homes. Everyone she met on Hillary's team seemed to know who she was. She took it as a normal protocol that they had been briefed on her background, specifically that she was volunteering as a producer of videos in support of the campaign. If Hillary won, Eric would be primed to play a central role in enacting her policies in New York. Later, as she addressed the crowd, she named him and complimented the work he was doing. At the second fundraiser, Harvey Weinstein was one of the first people to approach Eric. He wanted to help him raise money, saying Eric was the only guy doing anything. Tanya didn't know what to make of Weinstein. She had friends who had worked for him and had heard how he would make his assistants get drugs and prostitutes for him when he was at film festivals. A few days later, Eric asked if she'd come home with him and spend the weekend at his place in the city. He seemed genuinely interested in her and attracted to her. She was swooning. They went to his building on the Upper West Side. It was large with two bedrooms, three bathrooms and a dining room. In the living room was a painting of an old woman, murkily rendered, which spooked her, but she didn't ask its significance. He had a photo of him and Ram Dass, the spiritual leader, on his dresser. He said it had been taken by an ex-girlfriend. She was one of several women he described as crazy shark women who he believed dated him because of his powerful position. His ex-wife, who served as his advisor, was described by him as a stone-cold killer. He said he had never met anyone like Tanya. He made her feel different and separate from the women who came before her. Now, if you've listened to any of my other episodes, you know this is a major red flaggy behaviour. The love bombing, the trying to impress her, um, the speaking ill of um, the exes in his life. uh, All very, very, very common traits at the beginning of these abusive relationships. Eric looked sympathetically at her scars from her cancer surgeries and told her he admired her ability to overcome adversity. You're a good turn up, he said. His affectionate nickname for her based on the title of her blog, Tanya Turns Up. I think that's an amazing, amazing blog title. Her scars had long been an insecurity for her. In the fall of 2012, only a few months after surgery, her husband told her he wanted to separate. She had also suffered three miscarriages and an attempt at fertility treatment, which had to be stopped after they discovered the tumours. A year after her husband left her, a woman who had worked with them both said he had actually been in a relationship with his assistant director. Many of her friends had warned Tanya about this woman. They said she was trying to take her place, but at the time she had dismissed their concerns. She didn't think her husband was a bad person, but that he had done a bad thing. But it was liberating to know the truth. She chose to not be bitter. It was the beginning of the next phase of her life. Now, I'm really like in awe of this woman here because so she's gone through three miscarriages, uh, a fertility treatment that had to be stopped because they found cancer tumors. She has scars from several operations due to cancer. And then right after she has surgery, 
her husband leaves her and then she finds out a year later that he was having an affair the whole time. I mean, the fact that she says she chooses not to be bitter, I think that that's so inspirational. Like, it's very hard to not be bitter with everything that's happened to you, but she's amazing. By the time she and Eric met, she felt she was ready to be with someone again. Their values seemed to align. He was worshipped by those around him. The week after spending their first weekend together at his place, she went to Connecticut for work. While she was away, Eric called her often. Her friend said, he's the Attorney General of New York, he's got this much time to call you? One night, as they walked home from the theatre, she said, he's called you three times since we left the theatre. If my husband called me that many times, I'd hang up on him. I see aspects that he's trying to control you. Tanya didn't grasp the inside of her words. She didn't see his behaviour as threatening. She felt he just missed her. Looking back, Tanya says she can see how she got sucked in. Eric's outward-facing spirituality was a mask for the torment beneath his surface. His outward-facing feminism, a mask for his misogyny. He perpetuated the narrative of himself as an agent of change and transformation. Many people she trusted depicted Eric as a hero and he positioned himself as standing up for many causes she believed in. And she bought it. In between college and law school, he had worked at an abortion clinic. He had given women rides to and from the airport to comfort them. He had been a deputy sheriff in the Berkshires and befriended prisoners there. He showed her a letter an inmate had written him to thank him for his kindness. He introduced her to his many allies in the Latinx community. He always seemed proud to show her off. She would often go from feeling that she wasn't the typical politician's girlfriend to feeling that her being brown was an asset to his ambitions. He also made an effort to support her in her world, but she also realised her world provided him a personal connection to the campaign. It was something she could add to his profile. Many of her friends thought he was a catch. They communicated well and there was tenderness and camaraderie between them. But other patterns were emerging. He often asked her to make connections for him. She didn't think much of these requests at the time, but he seemed to only be interested in her friends if they could do something for him. He seemed to only want to talk about himself. He sometimes referred to her friends as ditzes or clueless, but they were very intelligent women. And again, this is kind of starting that whole isolation process. Politicians have to be charismatic and abusers are often charismatic too. Politicians and abusers can also be extremely narcissistic. At first, Eric was so aspiring and supportive that she didn't pick up on his narcissism, even he, when he would send her article after article about himself. Rather, she was feeling an adrenaline rush from the romance of her new relationship. And again, all of this stuff is very, very typical. On election day in November 2016, Tanya and Eric were full of confidence about the outcome. We would have our first female president, she thought. Tanya got dressed up and wore heels and paid to have her hair done. She seldom wore heels, but Eric preferred her to wear them to events. She rarely had her hair done, but Eric said her natural hair was too wild. He made her feel insecure about it. Maybe it was too ethnic for him. They went to two parties. By the time they got to the second one, the tide was turning for the worst. The day went from excitement to devastation. The next morning, a grey pall seemed to hang over the streets. Now, just to go off topic for a minute... I know exactly what she's talking about when she says this. I remember that night, first of all, when uh, Trump got elected. It was a shock, but 
I didn't really process it. It was like late at night and whatever. And then I remember the next day got up and went to work and it was like the day before my birthday and I was going out that night to celebrate with two of my friends. So I was working all day and I remember like the city was literally great. First of all, it was a really cloudy day. Everybody that came into the store I was working at was just miserable. It was just like nobody was talking. It was like silent. Like the city actually felt silent it was the strangest 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 feeling there was really just a dark cloud hanging over us and I remember going out that night and talking about it with my friends and we were just like you know we'd be talking about something and then next thing we'd just stop and go like I just can't believe it like it was just it was a crazy 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 time like I will never forget it So here was a man who was going to run the country who had done so many awful things. Tanya even knew people with disturbing stories about him, such as a woman who had been forbidden to touch his hair or use his bathroom and to avoid being pictured with him as she was a woman of colour. Another had lived in a building that Trump had bought. In an attempt to get the tenants to leave, he had his team cut off the heat and hot water and let garbage pile up to attract rodents. Tales of his awful antics were well known in New York circles. Eric went with her to Sri Lanka for Christmas. This really impressed her relatives as he was such an important person. It was the most relaxed Tanya had ever seen him. He talked about how everything smelled and looked different there. On Christmas Day, he helped her grandmother up the stairs and sat and talked with her. But his need to isolate her from her family was starting to increase. At her grandmother's house one day with all of her family present, he said he couldn't take much more of this. She took it to mean he didn't want to be around her family anymore. She said he could do his own thing. The next day, he stayed at their hotel while she went to family gatherings. Before they left Sri Lanka, her aunt organised an elaborate dinner for them. She even made sure to have enough fish and vegetables as Eric didn't eat meat. There was meat there for the rest of the family. Tanya wasn't vegetarian, but Eric would not allow her to eat meat in his presence. He saw her looking at a chicken dish and looked at her disapprovingly. After they returned to the US, Tanya felt another series of dark turns begin. At this point, she was basically living with him. They talked about staying at her place sometimes, but he said it would take too much coordination because of his need for security. Her building had 24-hour guards, and she said he could have his own security outside, but it didn't make a difference, so they never stayed at hers. She missed her life downtown, but Eric didn't want her out of his sight. Once she was at a film event in Tribeca, it was pouring rain and she was close to her place. She left him a message saying she was going to stay there. He phoned her back, shouting, I can't trust you. Her friend who was with her looked alarmed. She could see how angry he sounded. Tanya felt embarrassed, but she let the moment pass. Another time, she was receiving a reward for women of colour, and as the event ended, she got a call from Eric saying he had landed unexpectedly early and needed dinner. He didn't ask her how the event was and didn't congratulate her. He wanted her to leave right away and pick up dinner for him. Later, her friend who had been with her admitted that she could hear his tone through the phone and thought, how dare he? She's not his slave. I don't care who he is. Meanwhile, Tanya was ignoring the signs and felt that she was the one making mistakes. One day, she went to see a Broadway show with her friend. Her friend told her she seemed subdued in the relationship. Later, when she finally confided in her, she said she wished she had asked her more questions and read between the lines. Eric and Tanya had dinner one night with a friend of hers from college and her husband. Later, that friend told her she noticed Eric's possessiveness, how much he drank, his narcissism, and that it seemed his love for her acted as a validation for him. When another friend met him, she noticed how willing he was to objectify her into his life. The focus was always on him. 
He didn't talk about Tanya at all and seemed interested in her life only as it served him. After the election, his drinking started to become darker. As he became more comfortable with her, his addiction started to spill out. She would wake up to find he had eaten her food because he was hungry in the middle of the night after taking Ambien and Lorazepam along with alcohol. Sometimes she would wake up to find him staggering around the apartment and would have to guide him back to bed. When he was sober, she would describe his behaviour to him during the night. He would show regret and distress. She felt sorry for him because his pain was so deep that he was trying to annihilate himself, but she started to realise he was trying to annihilate her too. He would manipulate her by giving her things and then taking them away. He offered a guest room in his apartment to use as her own, but he wouldn't let her put a desk in there so she could have a study. She would instead work on the living room couch or the dining table until he would get annoyed that she was working there. Eventually, he said she could use his office, which he never used himself, but the Wi-Fi didn't work there because it was too far from the router. He kept confining her to narrower spaces and accusing her of taking up too much space. He wouldn't let her have a second closet in the guest room, so she had to squeeze her clothes into a small space until he eventually let her hang some clothes in his own closet. One day, she was hand-washing clothes in the guest bathroom and hanging them to dry, and he said with annoyance that it looked like Chinatown in here. She felt as though she couldn't move without committing an offence. He was constantly asking her to listen to him practice his speeches and to work with his staff, inviting people to his fundraisers. He never showed gratitude and sometimes even belittled how much she helped him. But still, there were times when he was positive. He talked about them moving into a bigger apartment so she could have her own study. He talked about them having kids. This made her laugh. Had he any idea that her first book was about her infertility? In January 2017, two nights before the inauguration, she stayed at her own place as she was due to speak in an event downtown the next day. She got a call from Eric in the morning. He was in the ER as he had drunk too much and fallen in the bathroom. When he woke up, he was lying in a pool of blood. She called the event organiser and told her she had to cancel her talk. He had a black eye and stitches around his eyebrow. He was scheduled to do a press conference that day. He asked her to take his picture and send it to his communications person. He also talked with his ex-wife, with whom he still regularly consulted. He said Tanya was to tell anyone who asked that he'd fallen while jogging. He had already made her feel trapped at home and now he was gradually isolating her from the outside world. She was also being frequently exposed to encounters that shouldn't have happened in her presence. She felt he was being careless in having work conversations she shouldn't have heard. He would even sometimes say that if they broke up, he would have to kill her. One night, while he was showing her old photos and letters, including from his time as sheriff, he suddenly paused and asked, Am I going to have to kill you if we break up? She said nothing. Usually, these moments passed quickly. Tanya would sometimes think to herself, if only all these people who worshipped him knew what a mess he was at home. If they only knew what he did to her. She began to see how every politician, a member of his or her inner circle, was in collusion with one another. No one was who they pretended to be. They all had something on one another and protected each other. They only cared about power and who got to wield it. They didn't care about the people. She was caught up in a confusing labyrinth and she couldn't talk to anyone about it. Often when Eric looked at Tanya's chest, he would tell her to see his plastic surgeon and get rid of her scars. He suggested she get a boob job and get into shape. For men with political ambitions, the way their partner looks impacts their prospects. In her situation, Eric's controlling of her appearance was a thread in a larger web of manipulation. He started taking her to a synagogue in his neighbourhood. She considered herself agnostic but didn't mind going with him. One night, he asked her if she would consider converting. 
He said he would take the classes with her. He always seemed uncomfortable in Tanya's world. On her birthday, she was giving a talk about women's activism. Many of her friends attended and Eric did too, which she thought was wonderful as he was very busy. Toward the end of the evening, her friends brought a cake out for her. Soon afterward, Eric insisted they leave immediately. Her friends couldn't believe he was making her leave her own birthday celebration. One later told her his behaviour was jarring. His forcing her to leave her own events happened on numerous occasions, even at a fundraiser she'd organised for him. A friend stood by her side waiting to meet him, but he suddenly said they had to leave. He gave her an agitated look and hurried her toward the door. Her friend tried to walk with them to at least have a few words with him. She wanted to know the man who had her friend's heart. He couldn't have cared less. He looked at her blankly, opened the car door and motioned for her to get in. Afterward, the friend told another friend, I don't like him. Tanya can't be herself around him. He didn't like her talking on the phone, even though he was often on the phone himself. If he heard her on the phone, even in the other room, with the door closed, he would open the door, glare at her and shake his head. During one call with her mother, she said, you get very quiet when he's around. My friends notice when I try to talk to you. And there was also his preventing her from eating certain foods. During 2017's Fashion Week, they went to a dinner party in Soho. One waiter came by with a chicken dish that Tanya really wanted to eat, but because Eric was there, she didn't. He glared at her and said, I saw the way you were looking at that. Another time, they were having dinner at a seafood restaurant. Complimentary chocolate pudding was served at the end, one of her favourite desserts. Eric wasn't eating his, so she asked if she could have his also, as the cup was quite small. He looked at her as though she was a naughty child and said, bad turnip. She began to cherish nights with friends where she would order both meat and dessert even if she wasn't in the mood for them. When Eric first slapped Tanya in the face while they were making love, it happened in the blink of an eye. He seemed to be testing her. She tried to make sense of it. At that moment, she became aware that he could inflict great harm on her. Over time, the slaps got harder and began to be accompanied by demands. He would slap her until she agreed to find him a young girl for a three-way. She told him what he wanted to hear, even though she knew it was never going to happen. He would slap her until she agreed to call him Master or Daddy. He recounted his fantasies of finding her somewhere far away to be his slave, his brown girl. Publicly, he was a friend and ally to communities of colour. But in the bedroom, he wanted to be Master and slap around his slave. He would hurl spit in her mouth and mash his lips against her so that it was hard for her to breathe. A few times he put his hands around her throat and tried to choke her. That old classic. She would tell him to stop but he didn't respond. He looked at her as if he was possessed and then the moment quickly passed. She was scared but she felt if she wanted to keep him she would have to let him dominate her. By day he was the crusading attorney general and he had to be sober. As soon as he got home he would start swinging from a bottle. He made her feel as if she had to be his caretaker in case he drank too much. He would take Ambian and Lorazepam at the same time. Sometimes she woke up to the sound of him watching movies beside her in bed with the volume up loud. She would say she needed to rest and suggested sleeping in the guest room which made him upset. Other times she would be woken up with his fingers inside her or him squeezing parts of her body. He seemed to be moving in his sleep and would say things like I love you or my bad bad girl, daddy's going to rape you. On a few occasions, after he passed out, she would go to the guest room and sit down with tears rolling down her cheeks. He started asking her to hide the bottles of alcohol from him, but in the morning they would be empty. He would say smugly, you didn't do your job. He would struggle to wake up in the mornings and would brush her away with a hand gesture if she tried to be near him. 
he would stagger around the apartment in a daze. She longed for signs of affection and intimacy. When they had those moments, she was happy with him, lying on the couch in an embrace as he played her his favourite songs. She tolerated the times they had sex where he slapped her and spat at her, calling her his property and his brown slave, thinking she could put up with that much. As long as it wasn't happening the majority of the time, maybe once a week, she was able to compartmentalise it. It was how she coped with the situation. But she began to realise she was in an endless cycle of abuse. Again, that's a very common um, thing to happen where you kind of just, you know, because the abuse isn't happening 24-7 and that's one thing that people really don't realise. So when it's not happening every day, you really cling on to the times where it's not happening and you always kind of convince yourself that that was the last time, but it never is. He made her feel that he needed her and she felt empathy for his difficult childhood. His parents had neglected him. She could feel the loneliness that he carried with him. She wanted to love him completely. He would say they were a good team. They could accomplish so much together. They could help change the world. But he was Jekyll and Hyde and she never knew which would be dominant. When things were bad, she dissociated. She thought the situation would calm down and that he would change. A few times he even acknowledged that he needed help, but he was worried that the world would find out. She had him speak on the phone with her therapist. After 15 minutes, he emerged and said he was fine. In February, a month after his hospital visit, she admitted to a friend that things weren't going well. She told her Eric was depressed and she was trying to help him. People had even tried to warn her about Eric. When she first started seeing him, a friend and mentor tried to tell her, I want you to be careful, I've heard. But the waiter cut them off and she didn't finish the sentence. A year later, she reached out to this friend and asked if she remembered what she had wanted to tell her. Without hesitation, her friend said, Yes, I heard he has a reputation for using and abusing women and then discarding them. Another friend told her she had been worried when Tanya confided in her early on about his drinking. She was shocked but not surprised when Tanya later told her about his abuse during sex. She always wondered if he had done the same to his previous girlfriends and sexual partners, but she thought the abuse was specific to her. He told her he'd never been with anyone like her. He praised her activism and her work, but he demeaned and humiliated her as a person. On many occasions, she told him that she felt he was trying to ruin her self-esteem. He said he was depressed. It took Tanya a while to make the connection between her own mother's experience with domestic violence and her own. Eric didn't hit her outside of the bedroom. She had entered into the relationship willingly. She even felt sorry for him. Unlike some of the abusers unmasked by the Me Too movement, Eric was a serial monogamist. He didn't need a different woman to abuse every day. He had her for almost a year. Once during the day and out of nowhere, he said he was getting bored as he didn't have anything like a three-way to look forward to. He mentioned friends of hers he found cute and suggested them as candidates. So why was she staying with him? Tanya now feels there's no real explanation, but rather a confluence of layers. As a child who had witnessed abuse, she could have been more likely to become a victim herself. As a woman who had been abandoned by her previous partner, she could have been psychologically more vulnerable. She didn't want to be alone and didn't want to be abandoned again. As an organiser who wanted to make the world a better place, she was attracted to Eric Stardom as a progressive advocate. She heard the applause when he spoke and got swept up in it. Applause can be blinding. For Thanksgiving 2016, Eric wanted to hold a jubu. This is a Jew who practices Buddhism. It's the first time I ever heard this term was when I was researching this episode. I found it really interesting. Um, so this is a celebration um, that he wanted to have at home with a small group of his friends. 
So he was even having the event catered, but he also wanted Tanya to make a curry. She spent hours buying the ingredients and preparing the dish, but before everyone arrived, he tasted it and said it wasn't good. He didn't want to serve it. She was incredibly hurt. It was thrown away. She felt she had failed him and wondered if that had been his intention. Now, I don't know if any of you have made any type of curry dishes before, any type of Indian dishes. Um, I am obsessed with Indian food. It's um, probably my favorite type of food. And it is, first of all, it's really hard to make, really hard to get it right because there's so many spices. And then because there's so many different types of spices and all that stuff, there's so many ingredients. It's so expensive to make it too. So I can only imagine how upsetting and frustrating that must have been for her. The pattern of abuse was becoming clearer. Nonetheless, she was having a harder time reconciling her experience of him, of him with the outside world's perception of him. He was not the man she thought he was. He was a hypocrite, but she was still mostly keeping that impression to herself. She would speak to a few trusted friends about his drinking and controlling behaviour, but she was frightened to tell anyone about his sexual abuse. She felt embarrassed and ashamed and also protective of him. She wouldn't be able to take it back. And what if he did change for the better? Couldn't he change if he wanted to? Her heart and mind weren't working with clarity. All of this sounds so familiar to me. Like, I mean, I am lucky in that I never had any um, sexual abuse in my relationship, but I can only imagine how, like, ashamed you would be. I mean, a lot of people don't talk about their sex life with their friends and then imagine if something like this is happening, it's already an easy topic to bring up. Um, And, you know, you do feel embarrassed and you do feel ashamed of the behaviour and you do feel protective of them. And, like, you know, if you put it out there and then suddenly they never do it again you can't take that back and your friends are never going to forget that. So they're always going to have that in their mind. Obviously we know that the behavior doesn't change, but at the time she doesn't know this because she's right in the middle of it. After she shared her story, so many friends told her about their own experiences. One friend talked about a verbally and financially abusive relationship. He hadn't slapped her once and he had slapped her once and she broke up with him. She wondered why she hadn't left earlier. Another friend described a relationship she had rekindled with a long-time lover. She had noticed that one day he was acting strange and distant, but hadn't realised he was using a variety of drugs. When she was half asleep, he stormed through the bedroom door and forced himself on her without speaking or consent. She didn't even seem to exist as a person in that moment. He was hurting her. Was he raping her? She remembers thinking. He didn't see her as a human being. They broke up that week. That's another thing too, like, you know, I think that's, what confuses people so much is like if someone that you're dating your husband partner whatever it is um starts like to have sex with you or is forcing you to have sex or like you wake up and they're already like touching you or having sex with you it's hard to kind of think like is this rape like because well I am their partner they expect sex from me and people find that so confusing and I also think people who have never had this happen to them find that so confusing too I think we all you know I think most people probably think of like you know rape being oh you know you're you're walking alone at night and someone drags you into an alleyway or the bushes or something um but the majority of time the statistics are all there is that it is somebody that you know um and that's just something that we really should acknowledge and and keep in the in the front of our minds 
Tanya saw more clearly how capable independent women became ensnared. Even fierce women get abused. This is so important and something that I always talk about. Um, my line that I always use, and you've probably heard me say before, is that it doesn't matter how successful, how strong, how attractive, how friendly, how outgoing, how independent you are, you are just as likely to get abused as anybody else is. And I think when you stop and think that like you know because in your own head you're thinking like I would never let myself be abused like I wouldn't let that happen but then when you see that oh this person was abused and she's really powerful and she's really cool and she's really independent then maybe I am too and I think that's so why it's so important for people to speak out if they feel like they can especially people in positions of power like celebrity I always find when celebrities speak out I find it so important and like almost like another weight off of me like I feel like see like this really successful person um with a great job and loads of money was still abused um and it's you know one of those reasons why I another huge reason why I spoke about my story like one thing that people in my personal life that know me well um always say to me when they find out what happened to me like I can't believe that you would have been abused like they're really shocked because people tend to think of me as being a really strong person and independent um and like someone that doesn't take any bullshit and I don't like all of those things are true but um being abused is it's a very 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 different ballgame there's so many levels to being abused and I think that's the kind of thing that people don't understand the most about it they just see this like little meek quiet housewife um and you know it's really important to kind of get that image out of our heads eric was taking out his need for power and his anxiety on her it happened at night in the dark when she was naked when it was more difficult to make an assertive decision it happened when they were the most intimate and she was the most vulnerable sometimes even half asleep when she told him she was in pain or asked him to stop, he ignored and belittled her. It felt like a bad dream. In the morning she would wake up and another day would begin where she would see his good side and would be hopeful. They also didn't have sex every day. He told her he was old. The less she had sex with him, the more she could avoid his abuse in the bedroom. Often she would go to bed early, deliberately. As time went by, the slaps got harder and the emotional and verbal abuse more frequent. She began to feel she was in hell. But he was also charming and charismatic, often supportive. She was constantly being pushed away from him and pulled toward him. She didn't realise he was breaking her down. She was more afraid to leave him than to stay with him. She always had it in the back of her mind that he could inflict great harm on her. He'd even threatened to have her killed on several occasions if they broke up. Would he really snap if they did? She wanted him to get help and for them to work it out. She thought the abuse could end. She thought he could change. One night in spring 2017, a friend told her another friend had called him and said she heard he had a reputation for being rough with women. She said nothing but filed it away in her mind. Later she found out she was the one in a long line of women who had experienced abuse by Eric and he seemed to customise the abuse with each woman. Tanya and Eric didn't have a volatile and argumentative relationship, but with other women he had. He had fought with them and hit them outside the bedroom. But the one constant was his need to hit and dehumanise women. He conditioned her to accept his treatment. She kept trying to modulate herself to be more conscientious about her appearance and her habits. 
The abuse was compounded by his addictions. It fueled his violence. He was creating his own undoing. He was laying the groundwork for the unearthing of his abuse by being so visible as an advocate for women. It was mind-boggling how he could pass laws to help women while harming real women in his own life. It was as if he were declaring, I can't be guilty of any of these private crimes because of what I do publicly. He often talked about his mother having been crazy and controlling and he took out his pent-up hatred for her on Tanya and other girlfriends. But being victimised as a child doesn't give anyone the right to abuse women. This is so important. By spring 2017, Tanya was making more and more plans to go away. When she wasn't around Eric and in his environment, there was more mental space for her intuition about him to kick in. When she went to her 25-year college reunion, she felt freer and happier than she had in a long time. When she returned, Eric continued to complain about how she took up space. She began to stay at her own apartment downtown on some nights. This made her realise how sleep-deprived she was and how cut off from her friends she had been. In July, she went to a wedding in Sri Lanka and then to Portland to work on a show. When she spoke to Eric at this time, he was always kind and calm. He said he was working on himself. She was hopeful that when she returned, things would be different. When she got back, he said he wanted space. She was hurt. A few weeks later, he came back from a meditation retreat and they went for dinner. He still said he wanted space to work on himself. She said she was going to stay at her place after dinner and he was upset she didn't want to come home with him. He acted like a little boy who wasn't getting his way, even though she was giving him the space he had asked for. She felt he was pushing her away and pulling her back constantly. She wasn't ready to break up but could feel herself beginning to detach herself, but she still kept hoping he was the man he claimed to be. A close friend called to check in. She told her things were strange with Eric and she was figuring out what to do. Her friend started asking questions as she began telling her details of his hitting her during sex. She asked if she would speak with her friend Jennifer Friedman, who was a domestic violence expert and a lawyer. She agreed. When she described her experiences to Jennifer, she felt disgusted at the words coming out of her mouth, the awareness that she had to put up with his treatment that she had put up with this treatment but it took confiding in her to realize eric was never going to change she finally told her therapist about the abuse he told her she had to get out after she connected with jennifer she had more of the tools she needed to extricate herself from her relationship with eric as gently as possible without setting him off and with her help she made a plan over dinner one night with her longtime friend danzy she told her of the things that had been happening Eric was at a meditation retreat and Danzi offered to go with Tanya to his place to get all of her belongings, but she told her she wanted to wait. Her things weren't important. The next day, she was in LA when she got a call from Eric. She hadn't spoken to him since the week before and she tensed up, wondering what he wanted. She didn't answer. He called twice more over the next 24 hours, getting increasingly agitated in his messages that he couldn't reach her. He thought they were supposed to have dinner that week and wanted to confirm. She sent a short email saying she was travelling and couldn't meet him. She was still speaking with Jennifer, who reminded her that her safety, not his career, was paramount. She said if she was alone with him, she didn't know what he was capable of. She told her not to poke the bear. They talked about getting her an order of protection, but his prominent position made it impossible to do so outside of the spotlight. She encouraged her to instead fade slowly out of his life. She told her to say she needed to think about it if he asked to meet her. She said to not give anything away and not to be impulsive. They came up with scripts for different scenarios. This is very, very clever and very good advice. When the time came for him to call, she calmed her nerves. She had a plan. He said it seemed like she'd been avoiding him. She said she just needed time. 
He said maybe they should go their separate ways and she said she thought that would be for the best, seeming to give him control of the situation. He was surprised at her response. Four days later, the Weinstein story by Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor broke in the New York Times. The Me Too reckoning had begun. When the New Yorker published Ronan Farrow's story about Weinstein, Eric emailed her, When you can, I think we should talk. I want to continue to support your good work. She didn't think the timing was a coincidence. That week, he wrote to her twice more, firstly to tell her he would be away for the weekend if she wanted to get her things, and then to ask if he should come with her to the Glamour Awards. She said, thank you, but she wouldn't get around to it this weekend. She didn't think it would be the best idea for him to come to the gala. Jennifer spoke to her about the security in her building and about an order of protection again. They talked about the next step of retrieving her belongings. She wondered if he would fly off the handle if he came back to an empty apartment. She wrote to him asking if she could come by that Friday. He said it was fine. Her friend Jen and her quickly grabbed her things. This reminds me so much of the the night that I just went with my friend. It was like 1am and just while my ex is at work and just like packed up all of my shit so quickly we were it was actually like we had such a laugh because we were so frantic um just like throwing things into like anywhere we could fit them and just piling them up by the door to pick them up the next day like it was just it was just wild when I think about it now it's just freaking hilarious not funny but funny the next morning, her friend Jen said a childhood friend of her husband's was an ex of Eric's. She had a similar story and wanted to get in touch with Tanya to let her know she wasn't alone and she wasn't crazy. Tanya felt panicked that Eric was now free to do this to other women. She felt a moral obligation to prevent that from happening. Another friend told her she had a friend who had worked for Eric and had always felt creeped out by him. She was realising she was part of a pattern. The silence of the women before her had meant that she had suffered too. Silence didn't feel like an option she could live with. She wrote a letter to Eric knowing she would never send it. I am recovering from a year of abuse by you. I don't expect you to acknowledge what you did. I don't even expect you to be aware of what you did. You were high on alcohol and ambient most of the time. But a guy who hits me until I agree to do something I will never do, like find a young woman to have a three-way or call him master or daddy, that's a sick guy. You are no better than Harvey Weinstein. I'm not scared of you. Even though you said early on in our relationship that you have to kill me if we broke up, that you could have my phone tapped and have me followed, I've already faced death and it doesn't scare me. I can imagine that you would rather write me off as a crazy person. Well, I'm not. I have a lot of people who care about me privately and who knew about your controlling, demeaning treatment. I had never been in an abusive relationship before and I had never been with an alcoholic. Now I know. It's not okay how you treated me. You need help. I hope you get it. Tanya's friend, Jennifer Gonerman, advised her to speak to a lawyer and recommended Roberta Robbie Kaplan. <clears throat> she could feel her disgust as she explained her experiences with Eric when they first spoke. She told her she didn't know what she was going to do, but she would keep her posted. Jennifer Friedman told her there must be others out there. They talked about possibly filing a police report. She said she wanted to keep a low profile. She knew if she came forward, Eric would come after her publicly. She was also worried about widening the net of people who knew as she didn't want a journalist finding out. They decided that for the moment she should just document everything and be careful to who she spoke to. She had many people with many connections at this time who offered to help her in various ways. She explored so many legal pathways for stopping his behaviour but they all seemed connected to him in some way. 
She was going to Portland for a few weeks and decided to reflect on her decision then. While she was in Portland, several segments of stories came out about how great Eric was, how he was the only one who was able to keep Trump in check and had been a thorn in his side for years. Tanya thought, this is what I'm up against. When she returned to New York, she had made a decision. She's going to tell her story to David Remnick from The New Yorker. She felt her story would be safe with him because of the courageous Me Too reporting. They set up a time to speak. He spoke with a few friends of hers at The New Yorker beforehand to get their opinion of her. When they finally met, he made it clear their conversation would be confidential and off the record. She had already sent him a first-person account and he asked her what she wanted to do. He said a first-person story would be tough as it was he said, she said. She had no physical evidence or police reports. She wondered if she had needed to have gotten a black eye to be believed. She gave him time to think about what to do. Soon after, she received an email from Eric saying he was trying to get backstage passes to the Grammys and would she like to come as his plus one. She had two thoughts, that he wasn't seeing anyone, therefore he wasn't abusing someone else, and that he wasn't onto her. It dragged her back into a fearful state. She was shaking inside. She said she didn't think it would be a good idea. She was about to go to LA and knew Eric's previous girlfriend Danzi lived there. She contacted her and they agreed to meet. Her story was similar to Tanya's. He would hold out her legs and say she had thick ankles. He would stretch out the skin around her eyes and say she needed Botox. He asked her to find women for three ways. He said she was depriving him of his sexual needs. Tanya felt as if she were hearing her own story. Donzie was worried she was recording the conversation. She was still fearful of the repercussions. She had been approached by reporters about Eric's behaviour and had been too scared to come forward. She had instead written out her account and put it in a safe deposit box in case anything happened to her. This is so clever. She had given the key to two friends. Tanya told her she was going to come forward. Danza said she wouldn't join her, but that she would say she believed her 100%. Tanya went to Sri Lanka and received another message from Eric. He said he was sorry to bother her, but he needed to speak to her about a sensitive matter. She said she was travelling and was with her family. He said it would be brief, just three minutes for a phone call. That he wouldn't bother her if it wasn't important. She started shaking and feeling rapid palpitations of her heart. It was all over the news that he was filing a lawsuit against the Weinstein Company and blocking its sale. Many leaders in the Me Too movement and Time's Up movements thanked him publicly. He was once again positioning himself as their hero. When the New Yorker and the New York Times shared the 2018 Pulitzer for public service to their Me Too coverage, Eric tweeted... Without the reporting of the New York Times and the New Yorker and the brave women and men who spoke up about the sexual harassment they endured at the hands of powerful men, there would not be the critical national reckoning underway. A well-deserved honour. Tanya thought, he's writing the story for me. When she returned to New York, she spoke to David again. He said he had decided to assign a reporter to her story. She was currently working on a big piece and would speak to Tanya after she turned it in. He told her not to tell anyone about this. It was going to be the scariest thing she had ever done. She felt embarrassed and ashamed that her sex life would be exposed. She valued her freedom. She wished she could come forward with her without her name being exposed. She considered moving apartments. In March, she was told by David that the reporter would be Jane Meyer. She described her experience to her. She said he was going to kill her or have someone kill her. Jane assured her he wouldn't, that if they got three women to talk on the record, then he was finished. Tanya felt the time had come to prepare those close to her. She told her mother. After she finished, she seemed weirdly relieved. She said, I thought you were going to tell me the cancer had come back and that I wouldn't have been and that I wouldn't have been able to take. She started talking about her father. 
He had told his brother that when he was dying, he felt like he was suffering because of what he had done to his wife. She kept saying she hated him, then saying she didn't, but that she was glad he was dead and gone. She had 24 years of suffering. She told Tanya that after seeing what had happened to her, she should have left Eric after the first time. She said he would get what's coming to him and that Tanya didn't have to be the one to do it. She didn't want her to come forward as she didn't want any publicity. Tanya said she needed support. She thanked her for listening. But a few hours later, she called again. She said, you should never have stayed with him after the first time. He thought he was a big shot. It's your mistake for not walking. When I see him, I was spit on his face because he's the attorney general. People kowtow to him. He thought he's a big deal. We're a bigger deal. Tanya recognised that her own experience was triggering for her mother. It made her sad, but she did what she had to do. Jane Meyer contacted, connected with several other ex- exes of Eric's and their stories were strikingly similar to Tanya's. She wanted to publish as soon as possible. Tanya said she needed time to get her life together. She had to make plans for her security and escape back to New York. She said she needed one week. She worried about the impact on her family, career and reputation. Once she put the story out there, she would never be able to take it back. She knew a few people would drift away and that would be okay. She knew that when the history of the Me Too movement was written, she wouldn't be able to live with being the one who had been too scared to protect other women. A Time magazine poll showed that 82% of respondents said women are more likely to speak about harassment since the Weinstein allegations. 85% said they believed the women making the allegations. She received more emails from Eric insisting they talk and then becoming angry when she wouldn't. He claimed he had to talk to her about Weinstein. He wanted to know if he... She had donated money to the film she had been producing around the election. Sorry, if Weinstein had been donating money to her films. She responded with a simple no. When she showed Jennifer the email, she said that she didn't even have to push him that hard for him to show his true colours. He seemed totally clueless and lacked self-awareness. A normal person would be concerned and not lash out. She was out in touch with Gavin DeBecker's expert security team who counselled her on her safety and gave her recommendations. Uh, so Gavin DeBecker, if you haven't heard of him, he's an American author and a security specialist. And I urge you to read his book, The Gift of Fear. Um, I'm going to cover it sometime in a future episode, but it is a must read for anyone, um, in particular women. It's an amazing book. It was written in the 90s. It's super old, but honestly, majority of the information is still, still, still relevant today. Tanya met with Jane and Ronan Farrow and she went through her story again. She was struck by both of them for their calm composure, gentle listening and clear reasoning. Farrow thanked her and said she may want to turn her phone off when the story came out. Afterwards, she found out Bill Cosby had been convicted. She said that that would not have happened a year ago. She knew her own story could drop any day. She was overwhelmed by the secret she was keeping. She started to anticipate the fallout. Then, due to a tactless message to the New York Times, there was a leak to a reporter. She started to reach out to people to find out about Tanya's story. A few days later, Tanya spoke to Jane, who said she had gotten an email from Eric's PR guy saying he had heard she was asking questions about Eric. He heard it was a Me Too story. He asked her to let him know. She responded that she would she would if there was a story. They had lost the advantage of surprise. She became more scared. David Remnick gave her a heads up that a fact checker would be contacting her and the story would be coming out soon. She made plans to leave the country on May 9th, but he couldn't guarantee it wouldn't run until after she left. He thanked her for her patience and trust. 
Tanya went to hide out at her friend Catherine's until her flight. On Monday, May 7th, David told her they were about to contact Eric's office for comments. This meant he would find out she was participating. Jane forwarded her all of the responses from his office. He was denying most of the allegations, but also claimed that some of the abuse had been consensual. David told her, we're off to the races. A little before 7pm on May 7th, she got a text from David saying the story was up. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I've linked the original article in the bio of the episode, but um, here I'm just going to just, I'm just going to just, just going to just, I'm going to read uh, some pieces from it that I felt were important. If you don't want to read the full article, but I suggest you read it if you haven't already. Schneiderman is facing a reckoning of his own. As his prominence as a voice against sexual misconduct has risen, so too has the distress of four women with whom he has had romantic relationships or encounters. They accuse Schneiderman of having subjected them to non-consensual physical violence. All have been reluctant to speak out, fearing reprisal. But two of the women, Michelle Manning Barish and Tanya Silvartnam, have talked to the New Yorker on the record because they feel that doing so could protect other women. Both say that he threatened to kill them if they broke up with him. Schneiderman smoked spokesperson said that he never made any of these threats a third former romantic partner of schneiderman's told manning barish and Savardnam that he also repeatedly subjected her to consensual physical violence but she told them that she is too frightened of him to come forward a fourth woman an attorney who has held prominent positions in the new york legal community says that schneiderman made an advance toward her when she rebuffed him he slapped her across the face with such force that it left a mark that lingered the next day she recalls screaming in surprise and pain and beginning to cry and says that she felt frightened. She's asked to remain unidentified but shared a photograph of the injury with the New Yorker. On May 1st, the New York-based National Institute for Reproductive Health honoured him as one of three champions of choice at its annual fundraising luncheon. Accepting the award, Schneiderman said, If a woman cannot control her body, she is not truly equal. But as Manning Barish sees it, you cannot be a champion of women when you're hitting them and choking them in bed and saying to them, you're a fucking whore. She says of Schneiderman's involvement in the Weinstein investigation, how can you put a perpetrator in charge of the country's most important sexual assault case? But Manning Barish begins, began to see signs of controlling and abusive behaviour. Soon after she started dating Schneiderman, he told her to remove a small tattoo from her wrist. It wasn't appropriate, he said, if she were to become the wife of a politician. The process of having it removed was painful and expensive. In retrospect, she says it was the first step in trying to control her body. Taking a strong woman and tearing her to pieces is his jab, she says. About four weeks after they became physically involved, she says Schneiderman grew violent. One night, they were in the bedroom of his Upper West Side apartment, still clothed but getting ready for bed and lightly beating each other. As she recalls it, he called her a whore and she talked back. They'd both been drinking and her recollection of their conversation is blurry, but what happened next remains vivid. Schneiderman, she says, backed her up to the edge of his bed. All of a sudden, he just slapped me, open-handed and with great force, across the face, landing the blow directly onto my ear. Manning Barish says, It was horrendous. It just came out of nowhere. My ear was ringing. I lost my balance and fell backward onto the bed. I sprang up, but at this point there was very little room between the bed and him. I got up to try to shove him back or take a swing and he pushed me back down. He then used his body weight to hold me down and he began to choke me. The choking was very hard. It was really bad. I kicked. In every fibre, I felt I was being beaten by a man. 
She finally freed herself and got back on her feet. I was crying and in shock, she says. She recalled shouting, are you crazy? To her astonishment, Schneiderman accused her of scratching him. At one point, she can't remember if it was at this moment or in a later conversation. He told her, you know, hitting an officer of the law is a felony. Manning Barish said that her ear bothered her for months. It often felt painful and clogged and she kept hearing odd gurgling sounds. Once, blood trickled out, reaching her collarbone. Eventually, Manning, Manning Barish sought medical help from Dr. Gwen Corvin, an ear, nose and throat specialist. Manning Barish says that Schneiderman pressed her to consume huge amounts of alcohol. She recalls, I would come over for dinner and already half-empty bottle of red wine would be on the counter. He had had a head start. Very stressful day, he would say. Sometimes, if she didn't drink quickly enough, she says, he would come to me like a baby who wouldn't eat its food and hold a glass to my lips while holding my face and sweetly but forcefully, like a parent, say, come on, Mimi, drink, 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 and essentially force me, at times actually spinning it down my chin and onto my chest. In the summer of 2016, the Attorney General may have crossed the line again. He went to a party in the Hamptons where he drank heavily and invited another guest, a woman he'd known for some time, to join him at an after-party. An accomplished Ivy League-educated lawyer with government experience, she had worked closely with his office in the past and supported him politically. She says that she agreed to let a man in Schneiderman's security detail drive them to the next destination. But when they arrived at the house, there was no party. It was where Schneiderman was staying. The security officer left the property. The lawyer and Schneiderman began making out, but he said things that repelled her. He told a woman, a divorced mother, that professional women with big jobs and children had so many decisions to make that when it came to sex, they secretly wanted men to take charge. She recalls him saying, Yeah, you act a certain way and look a certain way, but I know that at heart you are a dirty little slut. You want to be my whore. He became more sexually aggressive, but she was repulsed by his talk and pulled away from him. She says that suddenly, at least in my mind's eye, he drew back and there was a moment where I was like, what's happening? Then she recalls, he slapped me across the face hard twice, adding, I was stunned. When she told him that she wanted to leave, she recalls, he started to freak out, saying that he'd misjudged her. You'd really be surprised, he claimed. A lot of women like it. They don't always think they like it, but then they do and they ask for more. She again demanded to be taken home. They got into his car and it quickly became apparent how intoxicated he was. As he drove, weaving along back roads, she was terrified that he killed not just her but another driver. She says that Schneiderman broke the law at least once that night. This is untrue, Schneiderman's spokesperson said. Silvartanen, by contrast, feels caught up in circumstances that have given her only one real choice, to go public. It's torturous for me to do this, she says. I like my life. Of this article, she says, I wish my name didn't have to be in it. And notes of Schneiderman. I know it's going to be my word against his because I don't have photos of bruises and I don't have a police report. Schneiderman's accusers, she feels, are in an unusually difficult situation. As she puts it, what do you do if your abuser is the top law enforcement official in the state? Tanya was at a benefit dinner when the story broke. Her phone blew up for the next two hours. She heard that many New York politicians were calling for Eric to resign. Most of them didn't express sympathy for the victims. Then, Eric issued a statement. It's been my great honour and privilege to serve as Attorney General for the people of the state of New York. In the last several hours, serious allegations which I strongly contest have been made against me. While these allegations are unrelated to my professional conduct or the operations of the office, they will effectively prevent me from leading the office's work at this critical time. 
I therefore resigned my office, effective at the close of business on May 8, 2018. His ex-wife also issued a statement. I've known Eric for nearly 35 years as a husband, father and friend. These accusations are completely inconsistent with the man I know, who has always been someone of the highest character, outstanding values and a loving father. I find it impossible to believe these allegations are true. Her mother wrote to her and begged her not to go on TV and get cheap publicity. At that point, she was used to being blamed by her mother. She could not put herself in shoes and in her shoes and see that she had done the right thing. She felt the sting of her judgment. She had already planned to not do any follow-up press anyway. Barbara Underwood was appointing, appointed acting attorney general, the first woman to hold the position. Tanya began receiving an outpouring of support from strangers, friends, and even some family members, especially those of her generation. She had worried about her career, but her boss-to-be at a new art centre called to check on her. He said they were still on. Planned Parenthood sent her flowers. Governor Cuomo announced the appointment of a special prosecutor to investigate Eric. Tanya's ex-husband reached out to her by text. I'm sorry for what you're going through, and my heart goes out to you. (coughs) Excuse me. Sending much strength and love. As you can guess, journalists have started reaching out to me. Other than expressing my support, I'm not commenting, obviously. Wishing you the greatest strength. As ever, I admire your willingness to take a stand and be strong. The world is better for it. She heard that efforts were being made to discredit the story. Eric's ex-wife was sending emails to people at the New York Times. She claimed the New Yorker story was a witch hunt and that the magazine wasn't interested in hearing the other side. The investigation by Nassau County DA, Madeline Singers, began. She met her and her team at her lawyer Robert's office. She was asked what evidence of abuse she had. She thought again if she had to be bruised to be believed. Singers said she found it frustrating how high the bar was set for Eric's actions to be considered a crime. She said he fooled a lot of people. After Eric resigned, millions of dollars were made at his campaign fund, hundreds of thousands of which he had used to pay his legal bills. A few friends who had contributed were eager to get their money back. After they figured out how to, Tanya emailed to get her share and stated she would redonate it to a worthy cause. On October 6th, the Times published Tanya's op-ed. Again, I've linked the article, but here are some excerpts. Ultimately, I take responsibility for staying, but doing so took a deep toll. I have a long bridge to cross before I can be in an intimate relationship again. I didn't understand until after the relationship ended how physiological the impact is, the shaking and shuddering that happens suddenly when I feel trapped, when I feel mocked. Symptoms of post-traumatic stress are real and a common reaction to abuse. Sometimes when I look in the mirror, I hear his voice in my head belittling me. Still, while I regret getting into the relationship, I don't regret coming forward. We've learned this past year that our words can chip away at violence and can challenge the way society conditions us to accept it. Recently, I've been reading Naomi Alderman's novel, The Power, about a future society in which women discover hidden physical abilities, which includes this passage. A dozen women turned into a hundred, a hundred turned into a thousand. The police retreated, the women shouted, some made placards, they understood their strength all at once. We've learned that we are not alone. We understand our strengths all at once. She received many messages, including one from her mother, saying, I am only sad that you had to go through all this. You are strong just like your mother. I am not mad. Remember, no one loves you more. I love you so much and will always support you. Next time, if you find someone, let me know and I will give you my opinion. After reading this, she felt a healing and a move toward a positive place between her mother and herself. On November 18th, 
November 8th, 2018, Madeline Singer's Maddie announcement about made an announcement about the investigation. <clears throat> Guys, I'm so sorry. My voice is really starting to go. Um, I'm kind of all over the place, so uh, please forgive my mistakes and forgive my voice for sounding terrible. Um, so her statement was, following an exhaustive review, evaluation of the facts, the law and applicable statutes and limitations, I've concluded our investigation into the allegations of physical abuse allegedly committed by Schneiderman without criminal charges. I believe the women who shared their experiences with our investigation team. However, legal impediments, including statutes of limitations, preclude criminal prosecution. She also said that she proposed a new state law to protect victims of sexually motivated violence by making it illegal to hit, shove, slap or kick someone without their consent for the purpose of sexual arousal or gratification. Eric issued a statement. I recognise that District Attorney Singa's decision not to prosecute does not mean I have done nothing wrong. I accept full responsibility for my conduct in my relationships with my accusers and for the impact it had on them. He also said he was seeking help in a rehab facility and was committed to a lifelong path of recovery and making amends to those he had harmed. Tanya felt it was a positive outcome. She was surprised by Eric's words. She figured he'd had no choice but to make that statement, but might not actually mean it. But she was glad he was in rehab. So that is Tanya's story. Um, it's a really interesting one. Honestly, I recommend getting the book because there's so much information in it. Um, but also because I felt that there was so much important information in terms of like, there's lots of really interesting facts. There's lots of, you know, information about abuse and how to spot it and all the rest of that. And even though I've spoken about things like that before, because I think her information is so important, I'm going to release a bonus episode along with this episode. I'm hoping that I will release it the day after this episode comes out. I'm not sure with the sound of my voice right now if I'm going to be able to record it. It's going to be maybe like a 15-20 minute episode. It's going to be cr pretty quick. I'm just going to read some excerpts from her book directly. Um, but I highly recommend um, tuning in for that one or at least getting the book. Again, I've linked the book in my bio and all of the articles, the statements, everything that I mentioned here is all linked to the bio. Um, there's so much info out there about this story, but I wanted, as I do with every story... I want to get the point of view of the victim themselves and I think it's really brave of Tanya to come forward particularly um, in such a public way as she did and you know she risked a lot to um, be able to help other women who may potentially come into contact with Eric um, you know she kind of sacrificed herself for them I think and I think that that's extremely brave and yeah that is my story this week I am like I said going on vacation next week I'm working every day until then I have my next episode ready to go I just have to record it I'm not sure if I'm going to get time I was hoping I would have it done before I went to Ireland but I do have um when I get back from Ireland I have like four or five days still off work so I'm going to try and pack in as much into the podcast as I possibly can um, I've so much stuff coming up once I get back. I have to plan my friend's bachelorette party, which is going up soon. Um, I'm planning a trip um, for a month. I'm taking a month off work and I'm planning a trip. Um, and then I have so much more stuff coming up with the podcast. And I'm so excited about it. I also, oh my God, I also, guys, I got Beyonce tickets. Like, 
how exciting. For Florida, me and my friend, um, Trisha, we were, she's like my, my Beyonce girl. She's like my concert girl, really. She's so much fun at concerts. You know, when you just vibe with somebody. Um, so we literally signed up for everything. Every city, I think, in the world where she's doing a show, we signed up for. And uh, Florida were the first ones I got. And I was like, do you know what? Fuck, it, I'm just going to get them. So I got them. But that's our backup. And then we're going to we're gonna see, like, we're going to just do a vacation somewhere else. I mean, you know, who knows? We might go twice. I've never been to Florida before. I'm excited. Okay, I'm going to go because I'm rambling now. Um, Don't get me started on Beyonce because I will not shut up. Um, Sorry about my voice being not great uh, for this one um and yeah i'll talk to you guys next time and take care out there and live your best lives bye